Hello and welcome to History West Midlands, our regular in-depth examination of various aspects of the Black Country, recorded once more here at the Black Country Living Museum, Tipton Road, Dudley. Harry Fisher was born in 1898 and was gassed in the trenches in the early years of World War I. Harry was my grandfather, and even now, over 100 years down the line from that terrible conflict, the ramifications of the war to end all wars still have poignant and personal echoes, not only for me, but for whole generations of descendants. These were perhaps originally encapsulated, most graphically, by one of the greatest poets of the war era, Wilfred Owen, who, in his epic work uh, entitled 1914, foresaw how, and I quote, the winter of the world with perishing great darkness closes in. But how did World War I impact specifically on the black country? How did the people of the region respond and adapt? And when peace did break out, what was the aftermath and legacy of the Great War on both the area and its people? With me to help answer these questions is Dr. Terry Daniels, a former research chemist whose researches into his genealogy latterly developed into an interest in black country history with a focus on Albury in particular and the surrounding area. An author with uh, several books to his credit, he was, together with Langley Local History Society, responsible for the renovation and reciting of two Langley World War I memorials, a stained glass window and a granite cross. Sitting alongside him is Paul Phantom, a doctoral researcher in history at the University of Birmingham with a keen interest in the social history of the black country. He has also written extensively on various aspects of the black country, including Zeppelin raids and the black country strike of 1913. Welcome to you both, gentlemen. Let me turn to you first, Terry Daniels, and ask, uh, how did the black country actually adapt to the onset of World War I? Well, the government was ready on the 4th of August 1914. They'd got all their plans made. And the reservists, who were men who'd left the army and then served in the reserve, they were all immediately called up. So they got their telegram on the 4th, and they were reporting on the 5th. They went to their local recruiting offices, as did so many of the young men who were keen to volunteer. In Albury, the recruiting office was mainly for the Worcestershire Regiment, and the rest of the black country, it was mainly for the Staffordshire Regiment. That was presumably because Albury was part of Worcestershire. Albury was part of Worcestershire. And the territorials were also called up, although originally, as a territorial, they would only agreed to serve to defend this country, they were also asked to go overseas. So the recruiting offices were very busy and the people were all very enthusiastic to join. There was a great positive feeling that they must go to war and uh, teach the Hun a lesson. And it was a great adventure for the young men as well. They saw it very much as an adventure. And one of the young men from Albury was actually in the Smethwick Territorials and he reported to Broomfield. He got on the tram in Albury. The tram conductor would not take any fare because he was in his uniform and going off to fight. And everybody cheered as he got off the tram and went. And there he found, as he described it, a scene of utter chaos. There was so many people, all the territorials there, all the people trying to volunteer in a relatively small building. So it was greeted very enthusiastically by both the younger people and by the general population. The newspapers started off by appealing to the men to go, and then a few months later, when there still weren't enough men volunteering in 1915, the numbers had fallen off by then, they started to get the women to persuade the men. 
to join up. That did bring tension within families. But lots of young men who, for valid reasons, had not actually joined up in the war, received white feathers from women, indicating cowardice. In many cases, these were people who were actually involved in essential war work. So eventually the country brought out a scheme of uh, war workers' badges so they could wear these to indicate that although they were eligible to join the army, they were actually doing vital war work and therefore were prevented from actually joining. The removal of men from the industries they worked in must have had an impact on the industries and also those same industries had to gear to the onset of war. How did the areas industry adapt? The employers were very enthusiastic as well and so they were very supportive of the men who wanted to volunteer and of the reservists who'd been working for them. Most of the employers started to make up the wages to the normal levels that the men had got because they weren't paid at their normal levels when they were in the army. So they quite encouraged men to go, providing, obviously, that they had enough men left to carry on the work. But they also changed tack from their normal business, many of them, to providing munitions and materials required by the war. One interesting sideline is that not only did the army encourage men to volunteer, they also requisitioned all the horses. So Charles Brewery, for example, lost all of their horses, a great blow to the locals because it was very difficult to deliver the beer at that point. That detailed planning had gone on by the army. They'd got a record of every horse in the country and they knew which ones they were going to take. But the production that they needed for the war swung almost immediately into operation. So the carriage works, which had made railway carriages in Albury and wagons and a few trams and things like that, they immediately began to swing over to making materials for war. And then later on, as the tank was developed, they swung over to making tanks. The adaption of factories to these skills must have involved the bringing in of completely different skill sets that were unknown to us at that time in the area. In your own specialist field, Albury, there was the phosphorus bombs and other armaments made around the area. Where did those skills come from? If you take Albright and Wilson's who produced the phosphorus bombs, they also made bullets, a combination of phosphorus and nitroglycerine. Those were bullets designed to get down zeppelins and planes. So they had the skills in handling the materials. All they had to do was to adapt what they already did to what was required to make a bullet rather than to make the phosphorus itself, which uh, they were used to. How was the workforce made up at this time? We've lost most of the young folk to the war effort. What was the role of uh, elderly women, children? Well, we hadn't lost all of the young men because it was still a volunteer operation until 1916 when conscription came in. So there were still lots of young men working in the factories. But gradually, more and more women were brought into the work. And the work that the women did was quite remarkable, really. It was the first opportunity they'd had to establish what women could do. And they were making these phosphorus bombs. They were filling shells. In Ackles and Pollocks, for example, they were actually involved in tagging the tubes, which was a job that men had always done before. Women had never been involved in tube manufacture in any way. It was quite remarkable the opportunity they had to demonstrate what women could do. This must have represented a tremendous social upheaval from what had till then been the norm. 
what it did do, when the women went to work in the factories, of course, the attendance at school went down because the older children stayed back to look after the younger ones. So it must have disrupted family life if the father, the breadwinner, the main man had gone and then the woman in the family was involved in all this work that they'd never done before. Now, I gather that the First World War saw a severe curtailing on the sale of intoxicants and opening hours of pubs. That was surely no coincidence. What was that about? Well, there were two aspects to it. We'd never in this country had licensing hours before. Those were brought in fairly early in the war, partly to ensure that people didn't blow themselves up when they were making munitions and that they were sober on the job. And the other aspect was, in order to conserve cereals in the country, uh, they weakened the quality of the beer. So that must have been quite a blow to the men of the black country, I think. First of all, to have their hours restricted, and then to have the strength of the beer reduced. And that was a serious excuse to save on cereal? Yes, it was to save on the materials that were going into beer, which could have gone into alternative foodstuffs. Paul Phantom, I noticed you were nodding sagely when we discussed the prospect of bullets ripping through zeppelins. <laughs> you, one of your specialist fields. What was the effect of and uh, the response to threats such as uh, food and material shortages? By 1914, Britain was dependent upon imports of foodstuffs and raw materials, not only from the British Empire but also from around the globe. The war effort required the black country's men as soldiers, as Terry's alluded to, and it also needed the continued supply of food and materials from a diminished workforce. The situation was exacerbated by Germany's use of submarine warfare as a means to choke off the supply of such commodities. The Midlands were a source of coal and iron ore. Iron and steel was produced in vast quantities. The Midlands was also surrounded by fertile agricultural land, but British agriculture was afflicted with the problems of labour shortages and an ageing workforce. And despite the protection from conscription given to some of the farm workers and the employment of volunteers from the Women's Land Army and prisoners of war, dependence on imported food supplies persisted throughout the war years. The consequences of this were, in the early days of the war, panic buying. Later on, there were rising food prices and food shortages, which in conjunction with rising rents and the introduction of conscription through the Military Service Acts began to impact on morale on the home front. The failure to introduce a national system of food rationing until the summer of 1918 led to unrest. So we have disturbances in 1917 and 1918 locally because there were demonstrations over food shortages. Strikes threatened to paralyse the engineering industry. I'm Trying to imagine what it would be like for someone in the black country who'd hitherto lived under peace to suddenly be confronted by these huge aircraft, zeppelins, that had never been seen before, suddenly emerging out of the skies and the risk of aerial attack from that and the threats of gas attacks. We've already got civil unrest. How did they respond to these new threats? The black country was among the first places in the world to experience an attack from the air. This happened on the night of 31st January 1916. Two Zeppelin airships of the Imperial German Navy bombed the black country, specifically Tipton, Lower Bradley, Wensbury and Walsall. This was the raid that resulted in the death of the Lady Mayoress, Mary Julia Slater. Now the airships involved, there were nine of them, and they left their bases on Germany's North Sea coast 
to pursue a mission to bomb Liverpool. But due to climatic conditions, these airships dispersed over the British mainland and eventually two of them, the L-19 and the L-21, found their way to the black country, which they mistakenly believed was Liverpool. When the L-21 reached the black country at 8pm, it arrived over Tipton. The bombs dropped, destroyed buildings and killed 14 people and injured 10 others. It then proceeded on to Wensbury, where 13 people were killed. At Lower Bradley, two people were killed. The fatalities in Warsaw included, as I've mentioned, the Lady Mayoress. Later that night, another airship arrived, the L-19. Again, it dropped bombs in those same towns, but without causing much damage, it caused no loss of life. But it's the aftermath of this air raid that is also significant. There was considerable consternation because, unlike Birmingham, which had been blacked out, the black country was fully illuminated, which made it easier for the Zeppelins to identify the area, mistakenly believing it was Liverpool. Coroner's inquests were held, and these were widely reported in the press, although anonymised, so that you didn't actually get the names of the towns that had been bombed because of the censorship that was enforced that at was the time. That was presumably to avoid the lowering of morale. And to avoid giving information to the enemy. We've gone from the enthusiasm, almost joie de vivre, of the youngsters going off to war and have now reached a stage where we're having perceived threats of air raids, gas attacks, we now have civil unrest, food shortages, news blackouts. How were people's spirits kept buoyant at such times? In the aftermath of the air raids, you have a, a speech by Councillor Stanley Mill Slater, the husband of Lady Mayoress of Warsaw, and he talks about the way in which if the country gives way to panic or nervousness, if we allow apprehension to interfere with the output of munitions, we're doing exactly what the Germans want and exactly what will encourage them to launch further air raids against us. When thinking of the principal means of entertainment in society at that time, we have the music hall and the early years of the cinema. And one of the notable um, films that is introduced in 1916 is actually the Battle of the Somme. And the newspaper reports of the time indicate how people should go and see this to support and maintain the patriotic efforts of the country. There are other means to support the war effort in individual communities. There are clubs set up for the women who are working in the munitions factories. These are the so-called Tipperary clubs, where the women, when they're not working in the factories, can go and relax, enjoy a non-alcoholic drink and even a meal. In the days of shortages, there's a community effort to spread burden that the country is facing at that time. What do you think was the immediate aftermath post-1918, at the end of the war? How did people of the black country respond to armistice? Teddy, you want to come in on that? Immediately after the war, there was this great outpouring of relief. The day the armistice was declared, all the factory hooters were sounded, everybody stopped work, they all had a day off. They had bonfires and they had fireworks, which had all been banned during the war period. So where they kept the fireworks, I don't know, but out they came. So this was great. And then the next year, when the actual peace treaty was signed, as opposed to just the armistice, again, great celebrations throughout the black country and throughout the country as a whole. 
But gradually that faded as the returning soldiers actually told the tales, what circumstances they'd been living under and fighting under. People didn't know about that because that had been suppressed in the papers. And then they were looking to do war memorials for the people. And gradually, when the men came back, it wasn't the land that they'd been promised that they were going to come to because a lot of them couldn't get jobs. A land fit for heroes. Well, indeed, the land may have been fit for heroes, but the heroes never saw any of it. A lot of them were injured and therefore unable to work fully. I mean, Jack George, who'd written Tipperary and all the patriotic songs, he wrote a song, Where is Peaceland? which his publisher refused to publish because it was so much saying, you know, they've been to war, they've fought, now what have they got when they've come back? Nothing. There was a shortage of jobs. I mean, all the women who'd worked so heroically during the war, they were all given their cards the day after the war sort of thing. Albright and Wilson's had employed about 400 of them. They had a farewell party of all, shook them on the hand, gave them a medal, and that was it. Go back to the fireside and the kitchen and looking after the home. And that happened throughout industry. So there was quite rapidly after the euphoria at the end of the war, there was this decline in morale. Terrible as this uh, conflict was, were there any positives that came from it as a result? I think, in a sense, the great winners from the war were the women because they'd been able to demonstrate what they could do in opportunities and ways that, apart from the war, they would not have been able to demonstrate. And I think that has advanced the cause of women, although immediately, as I said, they were chopped off at the end of the war from working in industry. They'd established what they'd done, and I think that has been amplified throughout the next 100 years. So the situation for women did improve. I think we can say that there were improvements in health and housing because of increased wages for the munitions workers, and despite the rationing and the shortages, this enabled families to have better and more regular nutrition. This fed through into improvements in health, and particularly in infant mortality, the rates of which dropped considerably during the war years. Nevertheless, by 1918, the black country was, it has to be said, badly afflicted by the Spanish influenza pandemic. Which killed millions. Which mm. killed at least 50 millions worldwide. But one other consequence of the war was in terms of housing. In 1915, a piece of legislation was passed following a campaign in Glasgow, and this arose because unscrupulous landlords were trying to exploit the women whose husbands had gone away to fight by increasing the rents. And the government was forced to take action to avert a scandal which would have had a detrimental effect on morale. So you had the 1915 Rent Act, which froze the rent so that they couldn't be increased, and the 1919 Housing and Town Planning Act, which led to the start of the first council estates that we see across the black country today. Thank you. My thanks to both of you, Terry Daniels and Paul Phantom. And if you'd like to learn more about what my guests have been specifically discussing, then The Fallen of Albury, Langley and Warley, 1914 to 1918, is published by Langley Local History Society, and Terry Daniels' History of Albury website is available now on the internet. Similarly, Paul Phantom has Zeppelins Over the Black Country, The Midlands' First Blitz, and Industry, Labour and Patriotism in the Black Country, Wensbury at War, 1914 to 1918, both again available through the internet. And just a reminder that the Black Country Living Museum itself has a long-term commemoration of World War I running for some considerable time to come here at Tipton Road, Dudley. 
As always, if you wish to obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our audio resources or simply contact us, then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website and following the relevant links. We leave the final word on World War I to the great war poet Wilfred Owen, 1893-1918, but they who love the greater love lay down their life they do not hate. Join me next time for more fascinating insights into the Black Country. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening.